shared this testimony this morning in one of the services, but you might have missed it. Uh, we had a, a gal, uh, she came to like the fourth or the fifth service two weeks ago in Snohomish. And she had been recently diagnosed again for the second time with stage three colon cancer. In very bad condition, absolutely needed a miracle, was getting ready for massive chemotherapy, surgery, you name it, and just staring down a very dark hallway of medical procedures that, you know, frankly, uh, could end her life. And she heard about the miracles that were happening at Pursuit. She heard about it. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The Bible says that we overcame him, him being the devil, with the word of our testimony and the blood of the lamb. John says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. When a testimony gets released, it prophesies to those who hear it that if God did it for that person, God in fact can do it for me. And so we always make room and highlight testimonies because inherent within a testimony is a prophetic seed. When that seed gets planted into the soil and it's watered through the tears of persistent prayer, it births a chain reaction of miracles in the environment in which we are gathered. And so this woman, she had heard about the miracle. She had a coworker who worked out of the Northwest who comes to the church. And she had heard via this coworker that there were miracles happening at Pursuit. So two weeks ago, she makes the drive all the way from Portland, three, three and a half hours to attend a service and she came into the green room afterwards. She said, I drove from Portland, I'm here for my miracle. I need prayer, I've got stage three colon cancer. And after I get done with a service, I go back to the green room to grab like a cup of water, breathe for like 10 seconds and then get out on stage and do it again. So I'm already exhausted, but when I see faith for miracles, it pulls on my heart. And so I said, all right, come here, let's pray, let's lay hands. And so we just prayed. The Bible doesn't say pray for the sick, it says heal the sick. And so the way that I pray for the sick is by commanding sickness to leave that body. Because sickness actually has no legal authority to take residence inside of you. Its legal authority was canceled by the cross. So a spirit of infirmity that attaches itself to people is an illegal trespasser on kingdom property because you are a kingdom person. And so I just commanded this cancer to leave. I said, I command you to leave now in Jesus' name. Now listen, the miracle doesn't testify to my anointing, it testifies to the anointed one, which is Jesus. And God will use anybody. God will use a donkey. You know, when God does miracles through our lives, the testimony isn't meant to like go, oh man, look at that great man or woman of faith. It's meant to serve as a signpost that points people to Jesus. So we laid hands on her and I just commanded, I said, in Jesus' name, this cancer leaves your body now. We cancel the assignment, we cancel this diagnosis, and I loose the power of the great physician from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Cancer, go, healing, come now in Jesus' name. On the way back from Panama, I was in Panama this week preaching. On the way back from Panama, I get a message from her on Instagram. She says, Pastor, I gotta tell you a story. You're never gonna believe it. I said, I bet I will. She said, I went to the doctor because they had to do their scan again to prep me for all of the surgeries, the chemotherapy, all of the activity that they're gonna do. And wouldn't you know it, they cannot find cancer anywhere in my body. (laughs) 
Now, I'm gonna tell these testimonies until somebody in the Northwest begins to believe that the God that we serve still answers with fire, still has power, that at his right hand are mercy, blessings, and resources forevermore, and that he is not slack concerning his promises. As I tell these testimonies until it builds faith in the life of the audience that the God we serve, he can do anything. Now listen, this is either the sixth or the seventh person in the last like two and a half months at the church who either had stage three or stage four cancer. Somebody laid hands on them and they were healed in the power of Jesus. You know, whenever we host a night where we pray for the sick, I always get the online trolls and they're always bashing me and they're always, oh yeah, come on, you know, and that healing stuff, that's phony baloney. It ain't phony for the person who was stage three about to have reconstructive surgery. It wasn't phony for them. Well, you know, why wasn't everybody healed? If God can really heal, why wasn't everybody? I don't know why everybody wasn't healed, but I'm gonna focus on what God is doing, not on what God isn't doing. <laughs> and I have faith for miracles. We are a miracle people. You are a miracle person. You were headed to hell, now you're headed to heaven. That's a miracle. Your sins were dark but now they have been washed by his scarlet blood. That's a miracle. Your mind was debased, you were out of it, and God put you back in the right mind, clothed with power. That's a miracle. You were addicted, now you're free. That's a miracle. You were born again. That's a, we are a miracle people. It's impossible to be born again and not believe in miracles because your very regeneration was the greatest miracle ever performed. You were in the tombs and you came out of the tombs. Now, a couple weeks ago, you heard me say this. Let me remind you of this. A couple weeks ago, it was during the ministry time, so some of the folks had already left, but I got up and I was praying and I was prophesying. And I said, I believe by God's spirit, folks are gonna be stumbling in. They're gonna be on their way to a party. They're gonna be on their way to drinking, all sorts of things. And they're gonna hear the sounds from the church and they're gonna stumble in and the power of God is gonna hit him. You know, people hear me say this and like, oh yeah, that's Russell. He's just filled with faith and he's just talking. No, no, no. Let me show you a picture from this morning and then explain to you what happened. If you all have that picture, would you put it up on the screen? This man was standing outside of our building in Snohomish waiting for the bar at Collector's Choice to open. He heard the music coming from the building. He was headed to the bar to drink in the morning. He was standing outside of our building and heard the music begin to play. He walked into the foyer, didn't even get to the sanctuary, and the power of God hit him, and he was laid out in the foyer. Don't tell me God can't do it. Don't tell me God ain't in the business of turning those who are headed to death unto life. Don't tell me our God don't leave the 99 to go after the one. Don't tell me there ain't an anointing so heavy in the room that even people walking by are drawn in by the conviction of God's spirit. Don't tell me starting next week, September 28th, when them kids are back in school, we ain't gonna have UW students walking up and down this road, hearing the music, stumbling into this building, getting hit by the power of God in the foyer. Don't tell me God can't do it. He is doing it in even greater measure. This is the beginning. This is the beginning. 
God by his spirit is pulling a cloud the size of a college kid's hand over the Pacific Northwest. And it's revival time in Seattle. And our God is gonna make the enemy pay for every young person's life he ended prematurely through drug addiction, overdose, and suicide. Our God is gonna make the enemy pay for every person's mental health he has stolen who's walking around like a zombie outside the streets of Seattle. Our God is gonna make the enemy pay and he is gonna vindicate us with awakening. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we serve. Troll that. Troll that. Leave your little snarky comment. I'm gonna have revival in the Northwest. You can have your religion. You can live in the tombstones. You can believe in a Bible that no longer has authority and a gospel that no longer has power. But as for me and my house, we will trust the Lord. We will believe in the Lord. Our God still answers with fire and with power. Does he not take the leper and make them cleansed? Does he not take the demonized and set them free? Does he not take the orphan and sit them at his table? Does he not take the widow and move them into his house? Does not this God do his best work in the most desperate of places and circumstances and people? Oh, I think we're gonna see an entire harvest of folks who accidentally stumble into the house of God and they get hit by something that they can't explain. I am not in the business of explaining the power of God. We are in the business of demonstrating the power of God because this generation needs an encounter with something they cannot explain. Well, come on, what if we sing a song that people don't understand? So be it, so be it. What if somebody pray in the spirit and somebody don't understand it? So be it. What if somebody don't understand the manifestations at the altar? So be it. This generation needs an encounter with something they cannot explain. Now you can't explain this. You can't explain how the addict gets free. You can't explain how the drunk is made sober. You can't explain how the suicidal now lives life with joy and hope. You can't explain how the depressed take off the cloak of heaviness and now the joy of the Lord is their strength. You can't explain this. You can't deconstruct this. You can try to mock this, but the only thing it will cause you to do is miss out on what God has so desired to do in this region. Listen, I don't time. I don't got time for the religious hypocrites who want to be everybody else's fruit inspector, but they haven't seen fruit in 40 years. They want to be a critic of everybody else's revival, but they want no revival if it hit them upside the head and ran them over with a semi truck. No, I don't got time to explain to the religious hypocrites a God who moves into a city and the train of his robe fills a region and all of a sudden we have nighttime Nicodemuses coming out because they're curious because they heard a rumor about a God who still works in supernatural ways. I'm not trying to explain it. I'm trying to release it because this God is worthy of all praise and adoration. This is the God we serve. You ain't going to be explaining to the angels in the throne room of heaven. 
There ain't no sidebar theological conversations in the throne room of heaven. Well, let me explain the thundering and lightning. That was a little out of order. You know, if I was doing it, I wouldn't have a double-edged sword come out of my mouth when I'm speaking because people just wouldn't understand it. And what are these living creatures with four different types of faces? Don't make any sense to me. God is not interested in fitting within the framework of your mind. Until you get out of your mind and into his mind, you will miss out on every God opportunity right in front of you. You want a peace that passes your understanding? Stop building an altar to your understanding. We don't have a God that we can understand or dissect or deconstruct. We have a God who commands the worship of the nations. The one who is brilliant and matchless in his worth. The one who welcomes from every tribe, tongue, and kindred those who would call upon the name of the Lord. He is a mystery. He is an enigma. He is a paradigm wrapped within a paradox, baptized within Pentecost. You can't understand it. There's no explaining when a flame sits on your head. There's no explaining when a wind comes into the room. There's no explaining when all of a sudden his presence begins to permeate a person. There's no explaining when somebody shakes under the power of God. There's no explaining when somebody is overcome and overwhelmed by the love of a father. There's no explaining when God walks 15 years in your past to heal the trauma of your abuse. There's no explaining a God who does that work. not trying to explain him. I'm trying to behold him. I'm trying to worship him in the beauty of his majesty. It's a God that for the rest of eternity, I can worship him and barely scratch the surface of who he is. This is the type of God we must reintroduce to a generation that has only been force-fed dry, dead religion. And we wonder why they want nothing to do with our buildings and our cathedrals and our nice little messages about movies in the theaters. What are you going to do with a God like that? (laughs) We've over-explained. Got all the charts and the flannel graphs and the PowerPoints. 17,000 slides on how to understand the original Semitic languages. And at the end of the day, what people want is an encounter with a God who has the power to change their destiny and renew their mind and cause the nightmares to cease and heal the broken places of their heart and heal the abuse that they've encountered and heal up the abandonment that they faced. And at the end of the day, man, you can all the Greek and the Hebrew, but until you know him, oh, just to know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, just to know him. (laughs) We are over-informed and we are underdeveloped and we have become impressed with our own theological prowess. And we think that our arguments somehow can move the king of glory. And like God says to Job, were you there when I hung the stars? 
Were you there when I framed the worlds? But God, I don't understand. And God, it really hurts. And God, why me? And God, it's not fair. But were you there when I upheld the universe with my spoken word? And Job responds in repentance. I know my Redeemer lives. And one day I will see him stand on the earth. And if I never get another answer for the way things work in the complicated, frail human system in which I live, it is enough to know that I am known by a God who was there at the beginning and will be there at the end and at every moment in between. That's enough for me. (laughs) You can make all the arguments, friend. Listen, you can know all the apologetics. I'm not against any of that stuff, but at the end of the day, I'll take a demonstration of power over an argument in theology any day of the week. Because when God heals you, God touches you, God changes you, you become a walking, living, breathing billboard. Look what the Lord has done. He healed my body. He touched my mind. He saved me just in time. Look what the Lord has done for me. I'll tell you who could not explain his miracle. Lazarus, but he heard a voice that would resonate in his heart until the day God called him home. And that was Lazarus come forth. How do you explain resurrection to a culture that doesn't even believe in it? You don't. All you do is show them the man who was dead, who now lives again. (laughs) You ain't ready for tonight. Let me preach. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty for those who are in captivity. What I love about the spirit of the Lord is you don't even have to be preaching on freedom for people to come into it because it emanates from his presence. It emanates from the spiritual atmosphere that welcomes the king of glory. That means tonight, whether or not you ever get prayed for at the altar, healing can happen in your body. Breakthrough can happen in your mind. Because you're in an atmosphere where sickness is not allowed. You're in an atmosphere where demonic warfare is not allowed. You're in an atmosphere where every principality and power cowers in fear, knowing their time is limited. And all they want is for a church to cast them out, but to leave them in the region. But we're not just coming for an individual. We're coming for the city. We're putting every demon in hell on notice. You can't have that person. You can't have that family. You can't have that university. You can't have a city block. You can't have a neighborhood. You can't have a zip code. We're not just preaching the hell out of an individual. We're preaching the hell out of a region. There will be no place to hide for demonic principalities and powers in the Pacific Northwest. Here's the problem. Every time I, I get like this, people start to get a little nervous, you know, like, oh, man, I just, you know, I just wanted a little Bible lesson, and I just wanted a little, you know, just, uh, are we going to get goldfish and juice after service, and uh, when are we going to do the games, and when are we going to do the jokes, and when's the pastor going to do the stand-up comedy routine? That's what we fed the region, and they're on the doorstep of hell. So let's try something else. Let's give them an encounter with a God who has the power to transform their lives. I say, God, however they stumble in, 
May they get so hit by the power of God, the next time they go to do drugs, it ain't no high like the most high. The next time they go to get wasted, it ain't no wine like the new wine. I can't explain what happened to me in that church. I can't explain what happened when that prayer warrior laid their hands on me, but life has not been the same. It just feels like nothing else satisfies. It just feels like nothing else can get me like that thing got me. I can't explain it, but I'll give my life for it because for the first time, I have encountered the genuine. See, what substance does is it numbs the spiritual pain that a generation feels. But the problem is the more that they use it, the more that you need to numb it. It just becomes kind of this self-defeating cycle of, of, of lasciviousness, which drives you deeper and darker into a pit that you cannot get out of. <laughs> But when the gospel with power throws them a lifeline, those who have been forgiven much love much because they know I tried every other thing and ain't nothing could medicate my soul like the power of King Jesus who sits on a throne above the circle of the earth. <laughs> That's what we're gonna serve this generation. Now watch. Second Samuel 8, starting in verse one. Watch what the Bible says. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. David also defeated the Moabites. David also defeated the king of Zobah and captured 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. When the Syrians of Damascus came, David killed 22,000 of them as well. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites. Now, David reigned over all of Israel, doing what was just and right for all the people. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Everywhere the sole of his foot tread, victory broke out. David wasn't looking for victory. Victory was looking for him. It was like the Spirit of God saying to David, just put your hand on something. Just throw your spear at something. Just get out that old sling for target practice again. I'll cause 18,000 Edomites to fall at your left. I'll cause 22,000 Philistines to fall at your right. Just David, whatever you commit your hand to do, I'm gonna cause it to prosper because victory is looking for you. <laughs> You gotta hear that tonight, friend. Victory's looking for you. Victory's looking for you. Well, when I have victory, then I'll finally step out. No, step out and victory will find you. Now watch. During the time that 2 Samuel 8 is written, the tribes of Israel have been united. The Ark of the Covenant has returned to the holy city. The house of Saul has been defeated. David has been anointed king. The nation, watch, is coming into a period of rest because Israel has never been more strong. It has never been more successful and it has never been more blessed than under the 40 year leadership of a man after God's own heart named David. Not a man who was perfect. Not a man who never dealt with temptation. Not a man who never made a mistake. But a man whose crowning achievement was that at the end of his life, it could be said of him that he was an individual who pursued the heart of God. And in fact, it says of David that he served his generation and then he went to sleep. God isn't looking for perfection, he's looking for pursuit. Well, what if I make a mistake along the way? Oh, you will make a mistake along the way. And God already factored in all of the mistakes that you would ever make. <clears throat> what makes up for the mistakes that you make is in the midst of your shortcomings, a heart that says, I will be relentless in my pursuit of the things of God. But watch, watch, watch. Prior, prior to the great success of David, there is an even greater conflict he must endure. 
For see, David is married to Saul's daughter. His best friend is Saul's son, Jonathan. David served Saul as a loyal subject well before ever becoming king himself. And if you think your in-laws are difficult, you haven't met David's. Over the course of about 10 years, watch, Saul tries to murder David no less than 11 recorded times. 11 different times. Saul attempts to murder David. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, Saul is the best picture that has ever existed of insecure religious leaders that rather kill the next generation than see them supersede them. (laughs) But the honor of David is greater than the dysfunction and jealousy of Saul. When asked to play his heart before Saul, David agrees. When asked to fight Saul's enemies, David volunteers. When given an opportunity to kill Saul himself, David refuses to touch the Lord's anointed. Honor doesn't work because other people are honorable. It works because we are. Honor doesn't mean I always agree. It certainly doesn't mean I always understand. Honor means I fear God more than I love my own opinions, and I'm not going to miss out on an opportunity to receive. See, honor is the currency of heaven. And when man decides to honor, God decides to bless. Now watch, if I won't honor it, how can God trust me with it? Watch, if I won't honor resources, how can God release them? If I won't honor people, how can God send them? If I won't honor the gifts, how can the Spirit give them? If I won't honor the old, how will our foundations be established? If I won't honor the young, where will our passion and energy come from? And here's the reality. You can't receive from what you don't honor. And if honor was easy, everybody would do it, but most people don't. Honor is not honor until it's difficult to do. It's like cheering for a team that's winning. You ain't a real fan until you cheer for them when they're losing. If you're a fan of any of the sports teams in the Northwest, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm a Fairweather fan. Unless it's the fourth quarter and you in the Super Bowl, I'm not even interested. But cheering for a team that's winning is called being a Fairweather fan. Cheering for a team when they're in the middle of a 23-year rebuild is called being a loyal subject because you believe in something greater than the temporary loss of the people that are in front of you. What honor does is it positions you to receive out of the abundance that God will pour out on broken people's lives. It'd be a lot easier if God chose the best of the best to display his glory and his brilliance. But the older I get, the more I realize that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. For in fact, it is true that he has put his treasure in earthen vessels and some people are more earthen than others. Several years ago, when, when the church uh, <clears throat> first started, as we were struggling to pay the bills and counting every penny that came in and, and every penny that came out, I remember, I'll never forget this interaction. I, I had a staff member at that time, and 
there was a contractor who had done some things dirty to us and ripped us off and some things of that nature. And he was expecting to get paid for the full services that he rendered, although he actually caused more damage than things that he fixed. And so I met with them in my office and he said, I'm here to collect my payment. I said, I'm sure you are. I said, the problem is you're not gonna receive a payment, at least not from me. And he said, why? I said, because I have the fear of the Lord. And he said, what does that mean? And I said, the fear of the Lord causes me to be a good steward of the resources he gives us. And if I'm not a good steward of the resources that he gives us, then why on earth am I praying for more resources? Because God can't trust me with that which I don't steward. And so I gave him a line item of all the things that he messed up. By the time that he left the office, they were writing us a check for $30,000. Here's the reality. I remember getting grief for that in that moment. People say, oh, come on, Russell, just write the check and who cares and blah, 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 and all these sorts of things. But I knew in that moment that unless I developed the diligence to stay true to honoring whatever God would give us, then he wouldn't find me as a worthy servant to release more. It is the stewardship and the honor of what God sends, what God releases, what God develops, what God pours out. It is how and what you honor that tells God you're ready to receive more. Can I tell you what wages war against honor? Familiarity, unforgiveness, and unhealed wounds. The last event I was speaking at was in Carlsbad, Southern California. And I was invited to be the keynote speaker at this business event, this gathering of wealth creators and Christian business people from across the nation. And nobody knew who I was at the event except the lead guy. And so uh, they had really tight security at these events because they've had protests and leaks and death threats and all these types of things. And I wasn't really thinking. So I walked into the event looking like I look now. And I think I I look fine, but apparently to them, I look like maybe I was a part of Antifa or something like that. And before I could sit down at my seat, the security had thrown me out of the room. (laughs) And I said, I'm here to speak at the event. They said, oh yeah, sure you are. You're going to speak at the event. And I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but I promise you, God has a sense of humor. I am here to speak at the event. Oh, sure you are. (laughs) So I had to go back upstairs, get my lanyard to come down and prove that I had credentials. And then by the time they invited me to speak up at the event, of course, you know, the guys were apologizing. We're so sorry. And we didn't see it. And please forgive us. And all sorts of these things. And I said, look, man, I don't care. I don't operate that way anyways. What I found is that God will use all sorts of unusual people in unusual circumstances of life to confront the value system in your own heart. God uses a boy named Samuel to confront a priest named Eli. God uses that prophet now that he is older to confront Jesse as he orders his sons, not thinking that the anointing could be on David to be king. What honor does is it creates kind of this generational domino effect that when God can trust you to be an honorable individual to see things that other people can't. He'll use you as a catalyst in the lives of others to call out the gold that lays inside of them. See, it doesn't take honor or faith to see somebody's dirt, but it takes honor and faith to call out what lays residentially inside of them. Now watch. Well, my last pastor hurt me. My last boss fired me and that last relationship ended badly. So in an effort to reduce my chances at getting hurt again, let me operate with perpetual suspicion, keep people at a distance and never open my heart to receive. And the problem is, is that many folks have developed this as their modus operandi for the way that they interact in the house of God. Let me help you tonight. 
Honor isn't honor until it's difficult, just like mercy isn't merciful until it's undeserved. Watch what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. If you love those who love you, what credit is, it, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You've gotta see this tonight. Honor isn't a reaction. It's a choice. I am choosing to prefer you over myself. I am choosing to view you as Christ views you. I am choosing to position myself in such a way that I can receive. I know it's not easy, but I am not living life in reaction to how others have treated me. I'm going to take the high road and choose honor because I simply cannot afford to miss my blessing. The only thing that happens when you operate in dishonor is you miss out on an opportunity to receive blessing from God. Hear me, it is not natural, it is spiritual. But you are not a natural person, you are a spiritual person. And with God's help, we can make the choice to honor. And here's what I've found. If you will honor what other people won't, you will receive what other people can't. The principle of honor is all over scripture. 1 Timothy 5, elders are worthy of double honor. Hebrews 13, marriage is honorable amongst all men. 1 Thessalonians 4, self-control is honorable. Ephesians 5, wives honor your husband. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your first fruits. Matthew 10, if you honor a prophet, you receive the prophet's reward. Revelation 5, the lamb is worthy to receive honor. Ephesians 6, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you will live long on the earth. I am particularly struck by what Paul tells the church in Ephesus. He's quoting the fifth commandment from Exodus 20. Honor your father and your mother. If you will honor the last generation, not because they always got it right, not because they never messed up, not because you would do things exactly the same way, but if you would honor because the scripture commands us to, God in response will bless you with long life and an abundance of resource. See, the word honor in the Greek means to properly assign value and then to act accordingly. In every sense of the word, Saul had not lived an honorable life and does not deserve honorable treatment. But David refuses to allow the sin against him to produce sin inside of him. Now watch, Saul and his son Jonathan eventually end up dead. No, not at the hands of David, but in battle against the Philistines. This difficult chapter of David's life is finally over. He literally never has to think about these rotten people again. Finally, this is done. Finally, this story has ended. Finally, David can move on with his life, except for one little problem, a problem called covenant. For before Jonathan died, David made a covenantal promise to his friend, Jonathan that regardless of what happened, David would look after Jonathan's family and treat them like his own. So a chapter later, King David sits down for a meal and gets possessed by a question. 2 Samuel 9, now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? Let me just stop there for a moment. The man who has tried to kill you 11 times the man whose daughter you are married to who is an absolute nightmare of a human. The man who has made your life difficult. The man who has ordered you around. The man who tried to kill you and then didn't care if you died by sending you out to fight his battles that he was too chicken to fight himself. 
And yet in 2 Samuel 9, David asks, is there anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? And Ziba says to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. You gotta get this. David seeking to show kindness to Saul's grandson says more about the character of David than anything else. David didn't owe it. Saul's house didn't deserve it. But because honor is who David was, he asked the question, is there anyone left that I may show them the covenantal faithfulness of God by giving them a seat at my table? Hear me. You know your heart has been healed from the trauma of your past. When you, like David, can say, I know you tried to hurt me. I know you tried to injure me. I know you tried to curse me, cancel me, kill me, and abandon me. But I refuse to allow my pain to become the focal point of my identity. I serve a covenant-keeping God who breaks generational curses and heals generational pain. David is making the choice. I'm not repeating the cycle of Saul. Hear me, I'm not throwing spears at the next generation. For sometimes the best way to honor those who have caused you pain is by refusing to repeat their same mistakes in the life of someone else. Amen. Hear me, you have to be for others what you didn't have yourself. In fact, what you lacked growing up is a pretty good indicator of what God is asking you to provide for someone else. You may not have had a father, but you can be one. You may not have had a mother, but you can be one. You may not have had a safe household to grow up in, but you can develop one. You may not have come from the best stock. You may have come from addiction and darkness, but what you came from is no match to what you are going to because when you put faith in Jesus, you got a supernatural blood transfusion. It broke generational curses and it declared generational life. Watch, watch, watch. Why, why, why was the son of Jonathan lame in his feet? The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 4. He was five years old when the report came out that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. He was five years old when he heard that dad and grandpa were killed by the Philistines. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became disabled. And his name was Mephibosheth. <laughs> Let me help expose what the spirit of fear seeks to do in your life. It seeks to cause you to run and flee from the enemies that God wants you to have victory over. And watch, in doing so, 
the only thing you do is disable the next generation. Because when fear dominates the purview of your mind, you will cripple sons and daughters who you carry in your heart. A son was injured because a father died. And when that father died, those who were placed in charge of his care dropped him as they run away in fear. Let me just go ahead and make this super practical for you tonight. Some of you are here this evening and you are dealing with wounds in your heart because the people who were supposed to care for you injured you instead. That spouse who left you, that father who abandoned you, that church that crushed you, that boss who hurt you, that family member who abused you, it wasn't your fault and you've probably never received the apology that you deserved. So let me stand in the place of that father, that pastor, that family member, and say this, I am so sorry. I am so grieved on your behalf. And, it wouldn't, and when it broke your heart, it shattered God's. But here is your invitation. It is time to come back to the table because only a meal with the king can heal the wounds of your soul see forgiveness doesn't mean that what they did to you was okay forgiveness means I refuse to be a prisoner to my injury and today I am moving on here's the reality when fathers disappear it cripples sons when dads never come back home, it damages children. When shepherds vanish into the night, it wounds the sheep. But here's what I found. Getting hurt is unavoidable, but staying hurt is a decision. And although you may have been dropped by man, you have always been held by God. My identity doesn't come from the injury. It comes from the God who held me close when everything inside of me wanted to quit. I want to be careful how I say this tonight, but when we planted the church nine years ago, what I felt in my life, and I'm not saying this is true, but what I felt in my life was that when we stepped out to plant this church nine years ago, I felt rejected and abandoned by three key spiritual fathers in my life. And I felt like, hey, we're gonna announce that we're gonna plant and it's gonna be like announcing you won the lotto and everybody's gonna cheer and they're gonna be like, awesome. Do it. Run, Russell, run. We're behind you. <laughs> it, it was like the opposite reaction. It was like, we're behind you, way behind you. <laughs> and we got a spear coming for you. <laughs> now listen, I say this partly joking because God in his grace and his mercy has healed those relationships. I'm closer today with those men than I ever was before. But I had to make a decision when we were planting that I could not allow the wounds of the birthing process to be my disorder as this thing grew. Because I knew, watch, I knew that if I grew this nine-year-old with the wounds of fatherlessness in my own life, that I would create an orphan church instead of an adoption church. 
important. And I had to make the choice. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to move on. I'm going to ask forgiveness for places that I need it and for things that I've done wrong. And I'm going to operate as much as I can with a healed identity because I'm not going to get another chance to go back in time and rebirth this thing again. I've got to grow it the right way. I've got to steward it the right way, which means I've got to let go of the hurt, not because what you did was okay, but because I refuse to be a prisoner to my pain one day longer than I need to be. And how do you know you've been healed? Like Jesus who walked through a wall and appeared to the disciples who were huddled in secret, scared to death that they may be next. And he looks at the one who doubted Thomas and he says, reach into my wounds. Can I tell you, you know you are healed, not when your wounds disappear, but when others can reach into them and you don't have the same reaction. Reach into my wounds, Thomas. They're now there for your benefit. They don't hurt me anymore. They're a testament to how much I've been healed. And you know, sometimes you gotta prophesy to yourself that you've actually forgiven people and forgiven situations because when they come back in your mind, all of a sudden you get that emotional reaction again. Like, I am so angry at them. They are such a rotten person. I just can't believe what they did. And pretty soon you begin to retell yourself the story of the trauma to such an extent that you actually develop a spiritual tie in an unhealthy way. And when those memories come back and those traumas come back, I'm not saying it's ever gonna be easy, but it's gotta be a discipline of your soul. No, I've already released that to the Lord. I've already received healing in my life. I know that if I dwell on things below, not on things above, pretty soon I will find myself easily ensnared by the weight that holds me back. I can no longer be attached to what people have done to me. I am identified by what God has done for me. I'm gonna operate with a healed identity because these wounds may never close, but I bet you anything they can be the very thing that releases faith in the life of somebody who is hurting around me. Can I tell you right now in your sphere of influence, you got a dozen Thomases who need to reach into your healed wounds. (laughs) But if you have a GoFundMe spirit of infirmity, rather than a healed identity, every time that you have the opportunity to allow your wounds to heal on somebody else, you'll just bleed on people who didn't cut you. No, you gotta get healed because there's a Thomas looking at you. You gotta get healed because there's a Peter scared to death sitting around the table. No, you gotta get healed because there's some folks hiding out in a room who are scared to take the next step and they need to look at the healed version of who you are so that they can receive faith to take the next step on their spiritual journey as well. Listen, getting hurt is unavoidable, but staying hurt is a choice and I simply refuse to stay hurt because I have a testimony of what the God who heals has done on my behalf. Now, here's what I love about verse four. Watch this, because this is gonna get you. Watch this. The Bible says he was disabled. Watch. But his name was Mephibosheth. (laughs) Friends, is this not the gospel? I have an injury but I am not known by my injury. For instead, God calls me by name. Your name isn't trauma. Your name isn't abused. Your name isn't depressed. 
Your name isn't abandoned. Your name isn't disabled. Your name is beloved. And that is who you will always be. Injury should have taken you out. Abuse should have taken you out. Infirmity should have taken you out. Except for one little problem. A problem called covenant. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus. And by the Spirit of our God. And do you know what the name Mephibosheth means in the Hebrew? Shame destroyer. Can't you see where this story is headed? Don't you see the redemptive narrative at work? Jesus is the one who sits on the throne of David eternally. And he invites you to his table to heal the injuries of your heart. Why? Because from day one, you were born to destroy the works of darkness. And shame is losing its authority to tell your story. So watch, the king said to Ziba, where is he? And King David sent and brought him out of the house of Makir, the son of Emil from Lodabar. Can you imagine how terrified Mephibosheth would have been when that knock came on his door? The king wants to see you. Oh no, this is the day that I have been dreading. I'm just a poor, disabled little man. I wish I would have died when that nurse dropped me. It's better off if I never existed. The king wants to see you. That can only mean one thing. David found out I was still alive and he has come to seek revenge by paying me back for the sins of Saul. Do you know that in the Old Testament when a new king would ascend to the throne, the first thing that they would do is execute the family members of the old king because the family members of the old king would have a rightful claim to the throne and they would often lead rebellions against the new king if he was not from the same family lineage. When Mephibosheth gets that knock on the door, he's not going, oh, look at me, so excited, an invite to see King David. He's going, my past has finally caught up with me. Remember, according to the old covenant, the sins of the father are visited to the third and the fourth generation, which means David has every right to execute Mephibosheth for the sins of Saul. But David isn't seeking Mephibosheth for the sake of retribution, but instead for the sake of kindness. And do you know why God is searching for you this evening? Trust me, you've already punished yourself enough. God is looking for you in the garden. He is calling you by name for his plans are to prosper you, not to harm you. He is seeking you out for the sake of kindness. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul had come to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Mephibosheth wasn't responsible for his injury, but he was responsible for his healing. David, I still don't know what you want from an old cripple like me. But let me bow in honor 
Let me respond in reverence. Let me reply with gratitude. Oh, I know I'm different. I know I'm disabled. I know I'm passed over. But despite my limitations, I am making myself available to the king. So many folks don't approach God because they fear judgment, not realizing that if they would just respond to his voice, that instead they would receive mercy. Psalms 145 and 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Your healing, your restoration, your deliverance begins the day you trust him enough to answer his call. And watch what David, a type of Christ, says. He says, do not fear. I will show you kindness on behalf of the Father. I will restore you, and you will eat at my table forever. Can't you hear Jesus saying that over you today? Do not fear. I will show you kindness on behalf of the Father. I will restore your life, and you will eat at my table forever. David says it this way. Surely, goodness will follow me. Surely, mercy will follow me. Surely, I will dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. It's true. Mephibosheth did not technically deserve kindness, but neither did David. Think about all of David's mistakes, and yet God still finds a way to use him. Maybe what most unites us in this room tonight is that we are on the receiving end of a kind God who doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead has given us what Christ deserves. Mephibosheth bowed down, verse eight, and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Hmm. The years of hiding out, ashamed of his injury, embarrassed of his disability, scared of his future, it had taken a toll on Mephibosheth's identity. He said, I'm a dead dog. I am worthless and without merit. I am only a burden on those who are around me. And do you know David's response? He reinherits Mephibosheth. He gives him servants to work the land. He gives him the blessing that should have come from his father, but instead it was cut short. So watch how this story ends, and this is where I end. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, and he ate continually at the king's table. Yet he was lame in both of his feet. You got to get this. If you get one thing, get this. I am so fascinated the way this story ends. Mephibosheth lives the rest of his life dwelling in Jerusalem, eating at the king's table. Yet the author of 2 Samuel sees fit to include this detail. He was still lame in both of his feet. Hmm. I can't promise you that your scars will ever disappear, but I can tell you this. Jesus will take the pain of your yesterday and turn it into the triumph of your tomorrow. I can't rewind time and somehow change the dysfunction of the family you were raised in, but I can tell you this. Jesus is giving you a spiritual family with a spiritual table, and it's time to eat again. I can't promise you your feet will ever work like they used to, but I can tell you this. In the midst of your injury, God can give you a reason to sing, a reason to shout, a reason to hope, and a reason to praise. And Mephibosheth ate at the king's table continually, yet he was still lame in both of his feet. I just feel like the church of the living God is a company of Mephibosheths, injured by the circumstances of life, many times no fault of their own. But we have gathered at the king's table 
to eat of his abundance, to dwell in his prosperity, and that God causes us to re-inherit every square inch of territory that the enemy stole from us because of the disability that used to control us. Can I challenge you tonight that tonight is the last night your disability gets to control you. Tonight is the last night your dysfunction gets to identify you. Tonight is the last night shame gets to tell your story. You are a shame destroyer for you are a Mephibosheth that has has come to the king's table for such a time as this. Let me end here. I'll never forget sharing this sermon out of state at a conference. I believe it was Southern California. And I was sharing in particular on this verse how at the age of five, Mephibosheth was dropped and he became a cripple. And at the end of service, I made an altar call and in specific, one of those things that I was calling people to the altar for was injuries or abuses that they suffered as children that continued to scar them even to this day. And I'll never forget praying for a man at the end of service. And he was overcome with such great emotion. Like more so than normal in a, in, in a normal altar environment. And as I laid my hands on him to begin to pray for him, he said, Pastor, before you pray, can I tell you a story? He said, as you were sharing about Mephibosheth who was injured at the age of five, in my mind, I was transported back in time to the sexual abuse that started when I was five years old. He said, all of a sudden I was in that dark room again. All of a sudden I, I was feeling dirty and used again. All of a sudden, all those thoughts and anger and emotion and negativity and feelings of worthlessness, like I can never be used by God and I can never be clean and I can never be restored because what was stolen from me can never be repaid. As you were talking about Mephibosheth being five years old and injured, I realized that's me. And I've been in the prison of my injury for so many decades. <laughs> And as you were preaching tonight, I feel like for the first time in a long time, I'm believing that God can heal the five-year-old version of me that has been trapped in my injury all of these years. And I thought to myself, if this message was for only one person, then I'm okay with that because that's a story that I will never forget. And I want you to know tonight that you serve the God who travels back in time to the place of your injury, to the place of your divorce, to the place of your abandonment, to the place of your abuse. And his healing virtue begins to cover from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, restoring, renewing, rebuilding and re-inheriting everything the enemy tried to steal from you. Hear me, friend. 
if the enemy stole your innocence, my God can give it back. If the enemy stole your inheritance, my God can give it back. If the enemy stole your joy, my God can give it back. If the enemy stole your peace, my God can give it back. There was nothing more culturally inappropriate than a disabled beggar hanging around the king's table. I imagine when the servants of David walked in, they were shocked to see Mephibosheth. This man who's been hiding in shame and squalor. This man who has nothing going for him in his life. This man who's been abandoned. His relatives are dead. And to make it even worse, he's disabled. This man who's let all of his fields go and the enemy has taken his inheritance. This man who is better off dead. This man who identifies himself as a dead dog. And he's sitting at the table of David. I can almost hear the servants in my ears. How undignified. How inappropriate. Doesn't David know who he is? Doesn't David appreciate the title he's got? Doesn't David recognize the resources he has at his hand? But David, as a type of Christ, bows low into the brokenness of the human condition. And he says, no matter how broken Mephibosheth may appear, when he sits at my table, he will be known as a member of my royal family. And you've got to know tonight, when God sits you close, whether or not your injury ever disappears, it loses its authority to take the crowning seat of your identity for you become a member of his royal family. We are in a region. We are in a region that in so many ways has an entire chorus of disabled Christians who have been dropped by spiritual fathers. And only a God as good as the one we read about in this book can go back in time to the point of your trauma to heal your heart so you can trust again. I might be lame in these feet for the rest of my life, but I'm at the king's table and that's all that matters today. Come on, would you stand as, as we close this evening?